At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another BritFleets.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is Miguel Yanzo. Hello. Nice nice to be here. Good, good. I'm glad it's nice to be here, because we're going to talk about your movie, Jesus Shows You the Way to the Highway. Fantastic. Let's, let's go. Let's go for it. Well, first off, <laughs> let's tell people um, how they can watch it in the UK. I believe it's available on the Arrow Video channel, yeah? Yes, it's available in, in on Arrow Video Channel. I think it's uh, Amazon Prime, and and also yeah, basically Amazon Prime and, and uh, Arrow Video Channel. Before you tell us what the synopsis is of the story, I just wanted to read a little bit of a review that I wrote about your film, just to give people a sense of uh, what we're about to talk about, because. It's 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 safe to say it's an amazing film. I gave it four out of five, but it's not a traditional film. Um, and I'll just uh, I'll give an excerpt as to my uh, my thoughts on it. Jesus shows you the highway might be the analog answer to the Matrix mixed with the purposeful retro retro video game aesthetic of the original Bioshock meets Julian Temple's Absolute Beginners. It's also Nollywood Hutzpah and Devil May Care meets Gareth Marenghi's Dark Place. All the histrionic John Waters-style trash aesthetic coupled with having something serious to say. It's a midnight movie to share with your friends, all of them. I love the, the last sentence. Actually, that is a film to, to enjoy with your friends. I, I, I quote the, that, that sentence. I, I put it on Facebook. It's so great. Because it's because not it's not only the film that is made is is, is to be shown to your friends, but the way we make it, the way we made it is very friendly, and the spirit of friendship was there from the very beginning. So we were talking before that it's not a question of money when you make a film, but a question of love and passion and friendship. So all the playfulness of the film, if you want to call it like that. It's uh, also the the way we play with with uh, with our friends, no, and we joke and we we have our adventures. Me giving that kind of sort of fancy summary of it, which isn't very story specific, it's more about the sense of the film. Just to give people an idea that won't know, um, Jesus shows you the way to the highway. Do you want to try and give in what would be a brief synopsis as to what it's all about? I could say like uh, you put in a pot uh, Jesus Christ, uh, Batman, and Stalin, and which are kind of the the powers, the powers we call it. And then there is a small guy, which is our main character, which is a tragic hero, and he tries to basically go back home and open his pizzeria. So he's gonna be a puppet in the hands of these big powers. And this is what the film is about. It's about uh, all of us. We are just puppets of the fate, I guess, if I can say. You can say yeah. that, yes. 
that's, that's it. So basically, a guy that has to accomplish a mission, and he he uh, CIA, he's a CIA agent. He has to accomplish a mission, and he get uh, lost inside a system, VR system, virtual reality system, and then then he discovers that the mission is <laughs> quite tougher and more difficult than he imagined. And that he that it's not gonna be easier easy to go back home, and 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 because there is something very dark underground. No, very, and, and the very... thing is, people may be listening, going, "What the bloody hell is this film about?" Stuart said one thing, Miguel said another. It sounds like it's exciting, but I don't know. I can't quite put my finger on it. And I think the other thing that that I the other conclusion that I drew watching your film, obviously, when you get when you get to the end, for all of um, the absurdity and surreality that you offer, and all the inventiveness and imagination that you stretch, it still lands you in a place that feels like I've been from the beginning, the middle, and the end of a real story. The story is very simple, actually. Then. The core of the bone of the story is very simple. Uh, a guy that gets lost into the system and he has to go back home, and and then he has all these, this um, whatever these powers that control him. What, but to create the story was very simple. And what I, what I like is to uh, put layers on the top and like. I said with uh, with my friend Jose that, that, that I, I've been playing music with him for forever, that we have this sentence that more is more, more is more. Instead of less is more, is more. for us is more is more. For a writer, though, where, where, does, where does this story, where's the kernel of the idea that starts you off on the journey that becomes this film? Where does it start for you, this idea? Well, the core of the idea was that uh, there are three cores, basically. I was dreaming that uh, my girlfriend left me, and I was, <laughs> and I dream of uh, becoming a fly, and I was very disgusting in the dream. So my former girlfriend was saying like, uh, "Oh, don't don't come because you are a fly. You are very disgusting." <laughs> then with my uh, with this, right now my my couple, my girlfriend, we were traveling in the south of Spain. And we were lost in the desert and totally lost. And we saw um, a statue of Jesus Christ, the statue of Jesus Christ on the top of a hill, pointing, pointing at, the, at, the, at, the, at, the, at the highway. So we, we got, so the, that's the second kind of core. And the third core, it was like, I wanted to always make a film about my, my friend and the actor Daniel Tadese. And where he becomes the emperor of Ethiopia, and he loses afterwards this characteristic of being the emperor of Ethiopia and comes back to normal person. <laughs> In the three cases, there are certain metamorphoses, like people are something, they become uh, kind of like in a dream that you can become another person. You can um, and, and then I start playing with that concept of uh, liquid identities, liquid identities, which in every reality you are a different, a different person. And that was the kind of the, and I start playing with that from a tragic comic point of view. Tragic comic, I say like, you are a person in the hands of the fate. That's the essence, that's the essence of the tragedy. We see the, the Odyssey, uh, in the Odyssey, um, uh, Homer describes how the hero is in the hands always of the fate, and the fate is the result of the game of the gods. The gods start playing <laughs> among themselves and fighting, and the result is the fate of the hero. No, so the hero believes he can he can really perform. He has a um, how you call it um, uh, a will or a now there is there is another word for that uh, agency. Yeah, the the hero has an agency, but actually he doesn't. He doesn't because there is always fate. Is always the agency. Man manifest destiny will haunt us all, won't it? Exactly. 
just say it in two words. I mean, it's it's frightening. We've got to we've got to deny because obviously the ultimate manifest destiny is we're gonna die. That's that's certain. There's nothing. Our story ends when we die. Exactly. And we can't we can't we can't stop that. And you can say gods are controlling it, or that's just Mother Nature and how she treats us all. But that's the maximum thing which is out of control. And then there are small things out of control, right? But the biggest thing is that we're gonna die and we cannot avoid that. And I love very much of a Spanish film called The Executioner, uh, where the a guy end up being at the executioner. <laughs> You know, when he doesn't want to, I mean, at the beginning of the film, he will never think he's going to be the official executioner of the Franco government, you know. So it's a really tragic comedy because we were talking before, like, about this, you know, how do you end up in Estonia? How do you end up working with a producer? It's never, you never can predict it. So the film has, the film has this unpredictable path like life itself, no? One thing, normally the tales, in the tales that we are used to listen, uh, the hero end up where he wants to end up, especially in Hollywood films. He solves a problem and he saves the world, right? But, uh, so he makes it, he makes it, or she makes it. But in our film, and Jesus shows you the way to the highway, the, the hero never makes it because he always gets lost. <laughs> So I would say it's a little bit like Brazil. I recently watched it, like Terry Gilliam's Brazil, where you don't know where the film goes. You know that there is this... I was really surprised because even though I saw it recently, I didn't see it before, I, I, felt, I feel the same way. There is this structure of bureaucracy that I guess he is referring to Thatcher times like this structure of bureaucracy and the power of the state and everything. And then there is this little guy that tries to be happy and find happiness through finding the love, the, the love of his life. And, and, and things get very difficult. He, 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 he is also kind of a puppet in the system. And it's just what is it? it's one, it's one fly, isn't it? One fly in the typewriter. It's it, yeah. he, there is this music coming in Brazil that, that that represents his dreams, and he tries and he, he fails. He tries and fails. He tries and fails because there is something uncontrollable there. And and I guess we we you don't have to see the film anymore. We we <laughs> we have talk. You mentioned bef- you mentioned before about the three ju- the three cores and being out and you see Jesus and he's literally showing you the way to the highway. And before we started recording, we were joking about about how we've been, uh, oh, sorry, I was joking about being a writer stuck in, in lockdown is not much different than being a writer stuck inside when there is no lockdown. But you rightly said, you know, part of writing though is living. So in terms of um, in terms of how you then sort of wrestle with these sort of big ideas and this kind of absurdity, what's your process like for bringing these, I guess, bringing these ideas under control so that, I mean, do, are you writing a screenplay in the, that I would recognize as a screenplay to when, when you're bringing your ideas together? Yes. My screenplay is, is a monster because it changes very uh, week by week. So I, by the, the moment I shoot, the film is totally, I think totally different than the first version, but totally different. I mean, totally different. I mean, I, I remember the first version of the screenplay and the last version that we shot, and it was it was a totally different story. Seriously? <laughs> so, yeah, because I write something, and then I go and to and we do some location scouting, and then new ideas uh, come. Um, and then I include, and then I meet a person that is important for me and I have to include it in the film. And at the beginning, it was a film to be shot in Ethiopia. It was the story of a guy that, uh, becomes the emperor of Ethiopia and he loses this condition of, uh, this imperial condition and goes back to normal. But then I, but then I move here to, to, um, to Tallinn. And then I started uh, traveling and discovering these Soviet bunkers, right? And uh, all this. And then I have somehow to include it in the story. So it, it, the story be, became monstrous. 
Um, because basically what, yes, what was very important for me is this condition of the trip of a hero, the trip of a hero that tries to go back home and achieve his dreams. And the other things on the top, were kind of that were coming like discovering the bunkers in in Estonia or or making the uh, Ethiopian version of Batman. Uh, all these were just kind of anti-heroes that are going to try to stop the hero. No, so I, I was kind of traveling and including new characters, new ideas. What is your writing habit like? Are you how do you when you have to when you do have to sit down? Are you are you hours in front of the computer? Are you notepads? Are you talking to friends? I uh, spend a lot of hours in front of the computer, and I never dismiss any idea that make me laugh. If I laugh, uh, that's something probably very powerful. I remember it's kind of a little bit automatic writing, like the surrealist, like Buñuel and Dali. But under the, the automatic writing, there is always the subconscious that is telling you something. Uh, one of the, we, we create a short film called Chiguerale, was the, about a clone of Hitler that goes in, visits different bars in Addis Abeba. <laughs> and how we come to this idea? Well, basically, we were in, uh, my friend Israel and I, we were in Addis Abeba in a pizzeria, and they took like four hours to bring the pizza. But literally four hours. We asked the waiter, like, what happened? He said, no, there was no electricity. They said, oh, God, man, but you can tell me after an hour, right? Like, <laughs> And it's like, and then we start joking, like, oh, because we got very pissed. No, and we start joking, like, so imagine, but imagine Hitler in Addis Ababa, you know? Trying to create and very dark jokes you cannot say in uh, public, no. But I will say because we are in among friends, no. But uh, imagine Hitler here. How he, how is he gonna create his Holocaust? No, nothing works. Nothing works. I mean, the, there is no electricity. <laughs> there is no. There is no. I mean, you can cut this off if it's too hard. Hard, but 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 you know, imagine the trains, the trains of death that goes that they go to. To uh, to Auschwitz, you know, they're not gonna work. It's simply not gonna work, which is very positive, because we, you know, so that was kind of an automatic reflection of joking, sometimes joking, very very ugly jokes. But uh, then we we finish joking, we go back to what we have been joking about, and it's like, Wait a second, you know, Holocaust was possible only in a super high industrial society. So we were kind of joking about nothing works in Addis Abeba, the pizza is not coming. And we have concluded reflecting on how the Holocaust was possible due to a very high technified uh, technological society. So, so the point, the starting point are always jokes and they escalate into or they grow into reflections in a sense what you the way you describe it there is it's almost like you're letting your subconscious mind itself and then your conscious is reflecting on what you found that's exactly the process that i that i do you need to bottle this because that's almost like the essence of every single writing course i've ever been on is this idea of freeing yourself up to be working out your subconscious, not your conscious. That's the most difficult part, I think, because conscious is uh, moral, is uh, is moralistic. Conscious is always... Um, um, Saying you no. Know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and unconscious is wild, sometimes says things that you don't want to listen, sometimes says tough things, sexual things, and but... So we have, the conscious have to domesticate it. And the screenplay is this process of clashing between this domestication and these wild things that you don't want even to, to say to yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 there, and how much do you domesticate or how much you leave it wild is up to you and, and up to the, your capacity of standing or, or, or standing listening the truth. 
which is uh, the question that you want to maybe kill your father and, 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 and to say to yourself, yes, I want, but I'm not going to do it. But to admit it. I don't do it as regular as I should, but I, I journal, not in a sense of, you know, today I did this. It is just write, I write three until three pages are full. Even if I write, I don't know what to write, I don't know what to write, I'm going to write that until I get to three pages are done. And then you've you've kind of emptied your head and, and, and you can mine it and find some stuff. And most days there's nothing, but you've at least got it out of your head. I like to do this process with the people I love. And there are some people that that's why I have to make the, the, the films with my friends. One of them was, for instance, my friend, the director of photography, Israel Seoane, my brother, with my brother, I joke a lot, uh, with uh, Johannes, my first producer. My So, you know, in this process of dialogue uh, with people that were, you need to have people that are in the same level of dark jokes that you are. You are you know? familiar? Have you ever heard of the expression, the third mind? No, but don't. What is it? So William William Burroughs has this idea of the third mind. So if you you and your brother have a talk about a crazy idea and he says something, then you say something, then he says something, and before you know it, you're talking about you couldn't do the Holocaust without electricity and coal and oil. And what he what William Burroughs is saying is that that conversation creates a third mind in the room, which is the combined power of the two of you. That if you were on your own in separate rooms, you never would have come to the third idea. I mean, this is the most wise thing that I heard in lately. And this is a, really, really, is, I totally agree with that. Because, and sometimes it happened to me in Estonia that they, they, they don't think out loud. They just think and then say, and that, that doesn't allow a, a, a conversation, a dialogue. It goes very slow and it gets me, I mean, I'm not so creative here. Instead with certain people, like for instance, my, my girlfriend, I think, because I talk so much that finally she had to talk. There, there was no, no escape, no escape. So we, we start having this confrontation, productive confrontations, uh, productive uh, dialogues, no? the third mind, the creation of the third mind. But unfortunately, it doesn't happen so often here. That, uh, and, but it happens a lot in the moment that, for instance, my friend Jose, that I've been talking with for my whole life, comes into Estonia. In one second, we are creating amazing things. In one second, you know, and it's totally the third mind. I it's amazing that theory. I never heard it, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure it's it's it's, it's Burroughs. Come on, he, he calls it the third mind because it's that idea that without the on their own, the two people wouldn't come up with this thing that together they they somehow draw this they draw a new conclusion, which is like having three people in the room. There's like there's you, there's him, and then there's the combined version of yous. I love the idea because it refers to the also to it points out the idea of epiphany, which is a thought that doesn't belong to the person but belongs to the universe. You know, a thought, a thought that somehow the person just uh, with with his mind can um, uh, how can I say the mind works somehow like an antenna, <laughs> and you capture the the, the thought. But the thought is free, and is uh, it survives, survives the person, no? And I think these two persons dialoguing are producing something that doesn't belong to the ego, and to the person, but belongs to a kind of a superior entity, which is the the third mind. Well, the thing is, the, the an extension of this, which is not nothing to do with William Burroughs, but. I was I've interviewed and I'm I'm getting him on soon to talk about some of his favorite films but there's a um a sound artist in in Manchester called Matt Wand. He um he runs a record label called Hot Air Records and he, in the in the 90s he had an experimental thing called Stockhausen and Walkman 
which is pretty well known in the sound you know sound electronic sound music world and um and i remember when i first ever interviewed him and i was asking him about original ideas like where do original ideas sort of come from like you know you you confronted with something that feels so new and he was the first person to ever say you know ever ever say well there is no such thing as an original idea he said it's all on a continuum and what you experience is what you bring to your ideas but you're essentially consciously or subconsciously drawing on what you've what your parents have said to you that episode of a soap opera you've watched a captain b-fat album you listen to you know they've all added up to you coming to that idea you know it, i mean it sounds a bit crazy but Probably not to you, no. But yeah, in, in as I say it out loud, it feels crazy, but it's it has to be true because I can't. You can't be anyone but you. But when you come up with those ideas, they're not original because they are influenced by how you've lived your life. And we can, exactly, and we come to the point of the film as a collection of things and symbols, a mashup of of uh, of um, sparks rather than maybe a fascist line that holds everything together and but more like a kind of a sparks of uh, like poetry you know there is no one way but uh, one every entry point gives you the um, opens the road to kind of different ways and different possibilities that you will never explore or you will and you know I like this idea of labyrinth that you know you open in a labyrinth that with every movement of the film you get into a next stage or next um, level of the game with infinitum possibilities to, to follow, no, because they are sparks. It yeah. reminds me, I once I once took part in a theatre production called it's called it was called You Me Bum Bum Train, which is a banana's name for a theatre company. But um and I did it and it, instead of it, you know the usual thing is lots of people watch one performance. This was many singular performances happening to each person as they did it. So you arrived at the venue, which was a, a 1970s office block, and they put you in a wheelchair and they wheel you around the corridors and there's a guy in a doctor's coat and he wheels you into a room. The double doors opened and the first thing I'm greeted with is an American football team. And the captain of the team turns to me and says, and he knows my name, I haven't introduced myself or anything, but he goes, Stuart, you've got to give us one of your rousing speeches. And I'm like, fuck. And so I start saying something, and I don't know what's happening at this point, because obviously you're completely thrown. And then as you were getting into the swing of it, the guy just wheels you out of the room. And they just, they stay there. And then you get in a lift, and he starts talking. He's, he's, he's now got very serious expression in his face. And then you go to an order, and there's a huge MRI machine. And he said, Mr. Wright, would you, uh, would you just lie down on the MRI scanner, please? And so obviously you do it. And this is you. This is the, like a live performance. You're, but only you are seeing it with the actors. And I go into the MRI machine, but I don't stop. I go through the MRI machine, and then I'm in the next room, and I'm on a conveyor belt in what looks like an airport lounge, and people are picking up the luggage, but ignoring me. So there's just that, you know, I'm just one of the luggage, but they don't pick me up. And I keep going, and then I won't, give you the whole performance but then just to give you a sense of how extreme it goes then you go through another curtain and as you get to it you're in a sushi bar and you're on the thing with the sushi food and people are getting food ignoring you again and so it goes and each time you're kind of so there's the narrative is you but the actual action that's happening around you is not logical narrative it is life right i mean the the we give sense later on. We try to connect all the dots, all the random dots, and we, we draw the the elephant there, you know, this game of connecting dots. And then you see the elephant. But when you are connecting, you don't see the elephant. Actually, there is no elephant. The elephant comes only in retrospective. Well, the just to, just to cut a long story short, the final sequence after going through a, about 20 of these things is you, walk, you, you end up 
going down a chute, end up in a karaoke bar, someone gives you a microphone, and you sing a song. I did um, Bonnie Tyler's I Need a Hero. It was amazing. We're going to get back to your film, Jesus Shows You the Way to the Highway, which I know we were onto your film, but we were just we were being as tangential as uh, as your film is. But um, when it gets down, to, when you get down to production, obviously you've, there's the practicalities of getting it in the camera somehow, which um, for all the wildness of your imagination and the craziness of your ideas, there does come there does come a need for practicalities, which which isn't to set, which doesn't diminish the spirit of invention because clearly what people will see on screen when they watch it is an absolute spirit of, of imagination in the way that you execute it. Um, and um, I just thought what, what you talk us through sort of your processes in terms of say, let's let's take the virtual reality world for starters and that decision to just put cardboard masks on people as a as a way of signifying they're no longer in, in our world. Well, you know that um, we want to make the film so even we have budget or we don't have budget, we start making the film. So we started like three years ago and we made this stop motion part with the, with the mask, with the paper mask. And what, and so, uh, so it was starting like an experiment, like, and there was a lot of positive things. The first thing is that you can have, if my brother is not uh, able to do the film one day, I can put whatever, another character behind the, the paper mask, you know, another guy. So and, and this is a good thing. The second good thing is that uh, my brother and Agustin, my friend, they can do all characters. So we can have a, a full film with different characters because they put a mask on the top. So they, they will do many characters. And the great and the third great thing about the mask and the stop motion is that um, you include Hollywood actors in your film. And everybody was saying, like, you need Hollywood actors if you want to make it big. So let's then 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 we said, like, let's let's include um, uh, these uh, Richard Pryor and Robert Redford, which are the biggest. <laughs> and, uh, and so we have three. You see, uh, with one thing we 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 solve many pro production problems because uh, with two actors you can do a whole film with many characters um a friend of mine um sergio caballero that he made the distance and he made finisterre two spanish films also very surreal films he said like he, he came with an idea of um make a film about ghost so he said how, how i'm gonna do the ghost and he said like oh Wait a second. If I put a blanket on the top of um, of actors, I can use whatever actor, you know. So I can be my friend. It could be, you know, because you, and, and the idea come from the, from his uh, little uh, child, the, the boy, the, the son. Say so like, uh, pa Papa, put some blanket, you know. And the, and Sergio also um, Caballero was uh, Sergi Caballero got, uh, had another of the greatest idea I've heard in terms of production, which was like, you know, films have to work for 12 hours and then they have to rest for uh, 12 hours. You know, people cannot work 24 hours. So if they are shooting Game of Thrones, uh, you start shooting your parallel film in the sets of Game of Thrones with the camera of Game of Thrones in the 12 hours that were when Game of Thrones are not shooting. So it's called Occupy Set. You know, so you just pay for <laughs> you just pay for your actors, but you can have the best settings at the best location, and the producer can can produce two films at the same time. You know, with two different screenplays, the only thing that should be coincident is the locations and the sets and everything. But you rent the camera, you make the camera work twenty four hours. So when you are poor, you have to come to these types uh, of solutions. Uh, Buñuel, I, I, maybe I'm extended here too much, but I, um, when Buñuel was shooting Veridiana, at the end of Veridiana, he was going to perform a super big orgy in Veridiana uh, between the the nurse, no, the the, the the nun, the nun and the two guys. It was going to be a super big orgy, you know, a, a threesome. 
But it was Franco times. It was the dictator times in Spain. So he said, Buñuel, Luis, you cannot do this. You know, I mean, it's impossible. I mean, you cannot make an orgy. So they put him a limitation. So he created, he said, thanks to that limitation, I, I create one of the, my best things ever, which is like three people in the highest peak of the uh, erotic and the sexual tension in the highest peak of the film, he makes uh, three people playing cards in a table. It <laughs> <laughs> is like, you know, all the film is taking, all the sexuality of the film is taken to that high peak which is three guys playing cards on a table. Like he said, that's more genius than the original idea. So I, we try, I try to use limitation as an, as an opportunity, you know? And then, and then just to add, I mean, you've mentioned Robert Redford and Richard Pryor, which are, which are if, for want of a better expression, they may be the obvious play because they're Hollywood stars. But then for our antagonists to be Stalin and Princess Anne, Maybe not so obvious. Ah, <laughs> Stalin, it was kind of a good villain. I, I used too much, uh, too many times Hitler. So the next one must be Stalin. There was Pol Pot, but not so famous. So what? out of interest, why why the choice of the thick Irish accent for Stalin? Ah, uh, no, there was... Uh, we, we used... Um, <laughs> basically, also, we didn't have money to, to um, cast one character one, one voice for every character so there was a guy making five voices oh genius so so he said like uh okay let's do the and it was quite funny this tires uh, accent because it well the dubbing the, the the what we pretend with the dubbing is to separate a little bit the image with the sound like in the style of pasolini all the films that he made in the um, edipos and all the film he made in the 70s, also Dario Argento, well, all, all, all this tradition of dubbing, uh, Italian dubbing of the 70s that um, kind of creates certain distortion between the image and the sound. And uh, at the same time, it creates this, this feeling of irreality or sense of uh, tale, sense of, sense of um, you know, a, a comic 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 yeah book. did you out of interest but only because it doesn't happen that often or certainly it's not a tradition in in britain but did you, did you get to see last year's um bait by mark jenkins no i didn't it was he he shot the film on out of date 16 mil stock that he hand processed himself and because of speed he couldn't he didn't have the time to shoot the audio when he was shooting the pictures so he could shoot 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 and then they went and did ADR. And he said, he said, I interviewed him and he said, you know, I didn't plan. It wasn't through trying that the voices don't all sync up. But there becomes that beautiful, happy accident that actually the kind of lack of reality to the to the re, to the kind of um because it's it's a film about a fishing village and a fishing village losing its fishing industry and how people are upset and sad so the, the 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 sadness of what's going on is evident but then this layer of out of sync voices brings a level of so almost like fantasy to it it's like it's not it's not fantasy because it doesn't take you out the film but then once you get over it and you let the film be what it is it's not an issue at all exactly so the, that's exactly what we did because we also shot in 16 millimeters and and we will have to go fast and yes it, it it creates another dimension the question of creating the whole sound after that because we create the sound from zero we didn't even have a guy in, on set recording sound we create all the sound artist Dukalsis, which is the sound designer made an incredible job like to create to find and create every sound of the film and this is like, it, it, it enriches so much the world of the imagination, the world of possibilities that I compare more the film to uh, lately. I, I like very much these uh, Renaissance paintings like Bosch and like, and also, also the Orthodox paintings from the medieval times that you can find in the, in the uh, Ethiopian churches. And there are a lot of head, heads which are chopped and, and you know, cut off and a lot of blood. 
but there is not realistic. But back in time, that was very, very scary, you know, because the saints, the saints are killed. Um, Saint George, the dragon, the dragon, dragon, and everything, and and there was a sense of symbol. In, for instance, in Bosch, the Garden of Early, Early Delights, there is a sense of symbols on the top of realism. Film has been always very realistic, you know, very, uh, and, and when you go a little bit, even in, in, the, in the sense of uh, story, the sense of, and, and, and if, if you don't go through that realism, people don't take it serious, like, as if you don't take serious Bosch or, or Peter Bruegel, no? But in Peter Bruegel, <clears throat> this symbolism goes a little bit far beyond, you know, the sense of realism. I don't know. It creates yeah, yeah, kind no, of... no, you said because, but because the th I think the thing to say for people who what, who what have heard it, what have seen it, sorry, listening in to this, is that despite all of what might appear to be kind of chaos and madness is... On the, when you watch the movie, everything that you show us and everything that happens is played is played dead straight. Like you're not you're not laughing with the film. You can have a laugh while watching the film if, if you find it funny. But the film isn't say isn't the film isn't kind of going isn't trying to be smarter than it wants to be. It just is. You 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 draw your own conclusions, don't you? You you don't you don't you don't give it the audience on a plate. Yeah, every even if things look random, every decision is really taken seriously. I won't put anything that doesn't work in a deep level for me at least. So it's not uh, it's not a cheap so limitations are not cheap solutions. They are different things, you know. You could you couldn't say that the Renaissance painters are cheap, even uh, if they if they. Uh, the perspective of uh, I don't know of um, or the light of uh, Rembrandt, you know, and they say like, oh, the medieval painters they don't know how to paint the light, and Rembrandt they start to know how to paint the light. This is not true, but the goals were different. The decisions made in every moment were different. So uh, the film can look sometimes cheap or sometimes uh, random. But the work behind is very is very tough, and, and the decisions that we made are very conscious, and uh, and sometimes things don't work, and you don't include them. So not the things that things look random doesn't mean that everything works and everything can be included and nothing matters. You know, it's not it's not at all like that. Star of the show in uh, in Jesus Shows You the Way is is the character of Agent Gagano played by Ethiopian actor Daniel Tedeschi, and he he was in your first in, in in your first feature Crumbs as well in 2015. So um, and it's um, he's he's a disabled actor, and I guess when you were writing the role of Agent Gagano, what was 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 he always in mind? Well, I like weak, how can I say, vulnerable vulnerable uh, uh, characters because I'm a vulnerable person. I'm not uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme. <laughs> that makes two of us. <laughs> Even now he's vulnerable as well. Or uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And uh, so I like vulnerable people and I like people that are weak, that is weak. I feel identified with this kind of tragic heroes because uh, tragic heroes for me are more realistic. And with tragic heroes, I say these people, Daniel, who is brave, smart in the film, but at the same time has limitations, you know, limitations in terms of, well, he's not the strongest guy, he's not the most handsome in terms of, like, canon, canonic beauty or whatever. But, uh, but I find in these characters, in the character of Gagano, much more power, um, beauty in another level that uh, kind of an, a random uh, uh, CIA agent that is all muscles, you know, and all. So because his, tra his condition is much more tragic, 
his condition is much more empathic. You empathize with this character more with that. that with uh, I imagine the same film maybe with uh, a kind of a handsome guy from Hollywood and probably it's not going to work at all. At least there is Arnold Schwarzenegger because then it, work, it will work because, you know. But Arnold Schwarzenegger, how is now, you know, like an old guy, maybe they're all Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, with the muscles a little bit, like, you know, falling down. <laughs> I don't know. Can you think of a way in which Daniel brought something to the character that you weren't imagining on the page that then when you started filming him, you're like, this is, this is, this is who, this is who it is. Well, with Crumbs, uh, I discovered uh, something very powerful in Daniel that I didn't know. Uh, this the way he looks at the things, because film uh, actually the the way the characters look is so important. It connects the shots. It's the glue that connects shots. You can connect one shot to the other just uh, <laughs> because a character looks at something. And then that something looks at your character. Actually, 90% of the conversations are based on the eyes. So eyes are kind of the, well, the mirror of the soul, no? Uh, said, so uh, there is, I try to get rid of a lot of dialogue with Daniel because he doesn't speak English. So it makes me go to a very, to a, the very basics of human or the very basic of acting of a more than acting of human presence. Like, uh, okay, how can I get rid of this sentence? How can I rid of that sentence and keep kind of certain humanity in, in, in Daniel? And, and he had it, you know, he, he's a 100% presence for me. I mean, presence and the way he, he, he looks and the way he, he stands. Like, uh, so, I, he always surprised me. He always surprised me because I, I always said, like, Daniel, you don't have to perform. You have to be yourself. I always pull him down in the sense of, you know, overacting. Like, no, 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 no. And he got it very much in, in crumbs. And he now he's just himself. And the way he sometimes, uh, there is a scene that I love, that uh, Malin is boxing. See the the girlfriend. She's training. She's boxing, and he's looking through the through the window at her, and he's in the boxing club. And he yes, just you say yes. Look at her. She's your she's your your beloved. You love her, and I don't have to tell anything. The way he looks at her tells more than twenty five sentences. No, twenty five lines. I don't know. He has this talent whatever, like born talent. Well, he has practiced a lot because he's a theater actor and film actor in Ethiopia. So he Yeah, he yeah I was going to say, I mean, he might be unknown to me, but in Ethiopia, he's, he's, he's fairly recognizable, isn't he? He's uh, recognized, but what happened in Ethiopia is that recognition and money doesn't come in the same page, you know. And, but, so he's very popular in the neighborhood. He is very beloved. Everybody knows him, and you know this. But I love, I love that uh, it's not kind of the star system in Ethiopia doesn't come with luxury and recognition, but it's more like a neighborhood thing. You know that uh, you go with Daniel everywhere, and even if he doesn't have a penny, like like myself, I don't have a penny, but he's somehow he's famous. No, I mean he's. A man of the people, no? Everybody, ah, Daniel, ah, Daniel. And you go to the end of the world with him and to the end, ah, Daniel, hey, Gagano, hey, Gagano. You know, so uh, it's a very kind of low class or working class, um, I can say, uh, stardom. <laughs> how, far, how far did the in terms of location? I mean, you said it started out as being an idea you were going to do in Ethiopia and then your time in Estonia was um it revealed these other things these other elements that you wanted to play with but physically then where did where did where did you shoot the film where did where did you end up shooting was it was it many locations or did you just make you make a lot out of, of not moving very far and making it look like we traveled yes we we traveled a lot we make we make uh the first trip was to the nile waterfalls in ethiopia and we made we organized a kung fu fight <laughs> there 
uh, with Batman and the and the kung fu guys. So basically, in that trip, we were like uh, three three members of the crew. So we uh, we keep the the team very small in order to travel a lot. Then we went to, for instance, to the south of uh, Spain, to Almeria, where all um, Sergio Leone films Spaghetti were Westerns, shot. I've been there, yes. Spaghetti Westerns, and, and then we were shooting there also with... Uh, and then we the, the team in Estonia were a little bit bigger because it was more like manageable, you know, to people who were... The members of the crew were living in Tallinn, so, you know... The, but we yes we I tried to and then we shot in Latvia in the bunker in the Soviet bunker, so uh, our team grows, and and is uh, and um, sometimes grows and sometimes is smaller depending on our necessities. So it's not that we hire a team and we shoot the 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 film with the same team, but sometimes we are two, sometimes we are ten, sometimes we are four. So it's kind of wise to to calculate or to understand what are you going to shoot in in that precise moment and and call the team for that uh, for that shot uh, shooting right yeah and and all, all the time you were shooting on sixteen mil no on different formats we most of the uh, film is sixteen millimeters but the atom camera which is the big camera that's seen sixteen nine. But we have also Bolex camera, the old 16 Bolex camera from the 50s, 60s. And we have shot some parts in digital and some parts in, in stop motion, which is uh, basically pictures, uh, photo, photo by photo. So, and we combine everything because we are in the 21st century. And so all the formats, this is a kind of, um, all the formats are allowed and are combined. and. You just have to see YouTube videos, right? The format is non-existent. Yeah, no, no. I mean, look, I wouldn't. I would. Uh, the reason I ask is because I couldn't say for sure, and and it's the same with locations. It's like you can, we can, we can trick each other now quite easily about where we are and where we where we're not. In that sense, then the, the choice of formats and cameras and stuff was that. Was that to do with circumstance or was that by design? No, it's a little bit by design. We try to keep uh, Tallinn and kind of the original reality, the Soviet post-Soviet reality with the 60 millimeters uh, atom camera, a little bit wider, a little bit wider format, tripod, more steady to give the sense that this is the 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 the, the priority or this is the the first reality, you know. And then we go in. When we go into Ethiopia, we do it a little bit more trashy, more uh, adventurous, more. Um, so then, there in Ethiopia, we combine the Bolex with the digital camera. It gives that, and we uh, made the format four thirds, and so we give that that feeling of um, more like an adventure and and retrofuturism and and so many. Kind of incredible places in Ethiopia to shoot, not that look look from no time, like uh, like they they look from kind of the eighties, seventies, sixties, and so and you go with the Bolex camera and you place it there, and you really travel in time. Is it because it's fascinating first for me, you know, when I received the the lab was in is Kodak Lab in in the UK, and when I received the rushes from the lab, digitalized. Wow, you know, I travel in time. It's like because I want to be there. No, I want to be in the sixties. Or <laughs> for people who are looking at a, a country like Ethiopia for shooting a movie in, so that comes up in conversation. What what did you learn about shooting there that you could pass on to people? Because that's a you know that's not I, you're the first person to bring it up as a location to shoot in. So let's let's celebrate why why that was a good idea. Ethiopia is very easy if you know people. It's uh, if you don't know people, it's very difficult, and you have to know the rules because there are written rules and non-written rules, and non-written rules are more important. <laughs> yes, and and so but we, I, I, Israel, the director of photography, and myself lived there for a long time. I moved there mm. in two thousand eight, and 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 then I lived. So it's almost yes, twelve years ago. And uh, so living there make the things very easy because my producers are from Ethiopia, 
some of my producers are from Ethiopia are also my best friends. And we we are yeah, almost like brothers, like family, you know, that Taye and Meseret. So once you have a fit there and you have your producers are from there, everybody's very collaborative. And it's very easy to shoot. But if you come new, sometimes you have to know the rules. I mean the the people and it's not easy. Yeah. But uh, it's a very it's it's easy for instance. Uh, I don't know if I extend it, but anyway, you will edit it later on. <laughs> but uh, for instance, uh, how we do, uh, we we found these caves where the kung fu, some kung fu fighter fights are gonna are gonna happen. This is kind of a system of caves, right? And the system of caves were made by a guy that one night, one one day, like forty years ago, had a dream, and an angel told him like you should make caves. And and the guy woke up like 40 years ago and he started digging caves for 40 years. In. This is this is a real Ethiopian guy did this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how did we get the... the how did we find the guy? Well, ask him, like, look, we need some caves, but, the, but there are not so many caves in Estonia. Ah, so a friend of a friend of a friend told us, like, ah, you know, I know a guy who has been 40 years digging his own caves. So you are not in the culture, because this is not in the guides, you know. I mean, it's difficult to find. So if you are in the culture or you know people, like everywhere in the world, so some people is going to say, ah, you, I, I know this guy that is kind of digging the caves. There. And, and so you go and talk to him and with your, of course, uh, Ethiopian producer, you know, that, and I mean, at the end, people understand each other with a good, uh, with a beer or with, <laughs> you know, dedicating time. So you think, I mean, uh, just in, in all, I mean, obviously you said you, not everyone can sort of go live somewhere to get themselves acclimatized to what the film culture is like. Is it, is it, does it strike you as a, as a, as a country, you could, you could form links, you could form links with people on the ground and then grow it from there, then go, so to speak. Is it, it's that kind of place. It totally like that. And it's the same way as we find the actors. The actors, most of them are non-professional actors. So for instance, the Italian guy, how do I find him? Would I go to the Italian club? Look, I'm doing a film to the Italian club in Addis Abeba. I'm doing a film. I need some Italian mafia guys, you know. <laughs> my friend Marco, my friend Marco Vigano, Marco Vigano, he he's a guy that has been living there for twenty years. He knows all the Italian guys and everything. So they have the pizzas together every Saturday. Are we talking so about? I, are we talking about Mr. Sophistication here? Exactly. <laughs> so I go there and, and I say like, and, and my friend Marco said, "Come, come to have some pizzas on Saturday," and all of them will be there. They go there, and I met this Carlo Pironti, <laughs> and the guy was uh, fighting with the Persmergas in in Afghanistan. He's a, an anarchist from Italy. He ended up in in Ethiopia because he was running away from all this killing of anarchists in the seventies in in Italy. You know, there happened all this. Uh, yeah, anarchy. yeah, 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 yeah. So he his brother was in Ethiopia. Come come to Ethiopia because uh, you know you're gonna get killed really, and so all this fascinating people no, that end up living in Addis Abeba. You don't know why, because they have a very strange background stories. No? And yes, you have a couple of day pizzas with them and they end up being the characters of your film, right? And so without that work and without them, you know, friendship, it would be impossible to make a film like that. So it's so it sounds like it sounds a lot like there's there's a willingness to in, to engage and collaborate. You're not going there just to be serviced, are you? Exactly. I think we could talk all around the houses forever and ever, and I'm hoping that some people are making sense of this conversation. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I've learned a lot and I've explored a lot. That wasn't necessarily my intention. But I do thank you, Miguel, for taking us there. Well, thank you. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you so much. It was very... I think we created the third mind, right? I think we did. I think we, are, we, we have created the MP3 of our third mind. Uh, when we listen back, we won't recognise ourselves.
let's remind people then jesus shows you the way to the highway he's out now on arrow films and on their channel and various other vod platforms so people can look that out i'll put a link in the show notes um it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the podcast thank you thank you very much to you thank you Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.